Welcome to another episode of the Vets and Ag Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Desa, and here we explore the stories and insights from the military, veteran, and supporter communities who are leading the way for vets and agribusiness, ag tech, and agripreneurship. We swap stories, talk ag, and show how the grassroots nature of the ag community can be a natural fit for the military veteran. This is the second episode in a three-part series sponsored by Farmer Veteran Coalition, or FVC, a national nonprofit organization mobilizing veterans to feed America and transition from military service to careers in agriculture. This series showcases partnerships between FVC and organizations offering programs in ag tailored for military veterans. We'll interview stakeholders within the organization as well as a military veteran who participated in its programs. This week, our guests are Dave Carter, Director of Regional Technical Assistance Coordination for the Flower Hill Institute, and Marvin Frank, U.S. Army veteran and founder of Briarwood Cattle Farm and Briarwood Custom Meats. Both from humble beginnings in rural America, Dave found his passion for ag through journalism and an intentional choice to pursue non-commoditized meat production. He later found commonalities between the tight-knit group of families he grew up with in Colorado and the military veterans that he's fortunate enough to work with today through a partnership with FVC. After a nearly 30-year career of service, Marvin's life was almost cut short by his own hand before his father, and a Vietnam veteran and cattle farmer, turned him on to the healing properties and lifestyle of cattle rearing. The Farmer Veteran Coalition gave him his start and continues to provide the framework, support, and branding required to take the Briarwood brand to the next level. You don't want to miss this episode where we talk about Briarwood's unique strategy for making their beef stand out and Dave's lifetime of insights and experiences packed into a single episode. Enjoy. Our business was the tourist business. And so uh, people would have uh, summer cabins or they'd come up and stay at a guest lodge and we had a cafe and in uh, rental cabins and we sold real estate. My dad built cabins and I worked in a riding stable in a general store, but all of that was between the middle of May and and the end of October every year. And then uh, even the folks that owned the livery stable or the the guest lodges would move out and go down to where it was warm. And there were probably 15 or 20 families that that lived there uh, year round. And what that instilled in me was the the value and the importance of relationships, uh, the value and the importance of community, and of course, an appreciation of nature. It's an absolutely gorgeous area, but, you know, the the winters up there are kind of hard, and and we all took care of each other, and, you know, one of the things that I I still remember to this day, there, there was one gas station in town, and it was owned by an older couple, and they liked to travel in the winter. They'd take off for a month at a time. And this was long before pay at the pump. Gas was there. You actually had to go into the gas station and turn on the, the gas pumps to get your gas. So they solved the problem. They just made a key to their gas station for everybody in the area. And I had a big chief tablet sitting on the on the counter and you'd go in, get your gas and write it down. And when they got back, you'd settle up. And uh, Johnny McCollister, uh, the, the owner told my dad one time, he said, Boy, that worked out great for us. We always came out ahead because everybody always rounded up, you know, and it's just that people appreciated and they understood the importance of of those connections. So then, you know, after uh, high school and and in college, I wanted to be a journalist. So I went to journalism school and uh, 
met a, a beautiful woman there who has been uh, with me now for 46 years. But she and I wanted to buy a weekly newspaper in a little town, but we didn't have any money. So went to work for a farm organization doing PR, uh, the Farmers Union, and thought I'd stay there until we bought our newspaper. Well, that turned out to be 25 years. And, you know, it's a, it's a great organization because uh, worked with family farmers and ranchers and, and independent producers. But I think sort of the epiphany event for me was we went through the farm crisis in the 1980s. And that was a really, really ugly time. I mean, there was a, a deliberate effort at that time to help balance the federal budget by foreclosing on farmers that were delinquent uh, on their loans with USDA. And, and so there were just um, massive foreclosures around. We set up a farm crisis hotline and, and worked on uh, debt restructuring legislation. But coming out of the farm crisis, I noticed that agriculture really started to take two paths. Number one were producers saying, okay, um, it's about commodities. And I'm gonna raise number two yellow corn, but my margins are gonna be this thin. So I've got to have the biggest equipment and the most land. And um, boy, I'm gonna use these uh, new technologies that come along. And then on the other hand, there were farmers that said, no, I'm a, I'm a farmer. Um, I don't produce a commodity, I produce food. I wanna feed my community. I wanna produce the best food possible. And so, there were folks like Mel Coleman that started Coleman Natural Meat and, and a group of farmers up in Wisconsin that got together and started Organic Valley uh, Co-op. And that's really where my passion gravitated. So through the years, I began to work more and more in co-op development. I got involved in organic agriculture. And when I left the Farmers Union in 2001, mm -hmm. um, ended up on the National Organic Standards Board. So I had a chance to um, help implement the organic regulations that we have now. But I also ended up as the director of the National Bison Association. And, and that's where, um, again, working with producers that weren't a commodity, in fact, deliberately not being a commodity, and helping to build the bison uh, business by um, connecting with folks around the values of the good quality meat and how we take care of the animal and how the animal takes care of the land. So it seemed really natural then when uh, the Biden administration made this commitment to creating a more resilient and, and equitable, diverse meat processing system. And I had an opportunity to come on board was, this just seemed like a, a natural progression was to work with, with farmers and ranchers like Marvin and others around the country that are really trying to establish those businesses that connect the farmers and ranchers who are taking care of the animals, taking care of the land, with the customers, I don't even like to call them consumers, with customers out there who uh, appreciate those values and the value of, the, of those products. Dave, why, why do you think there's there's so much of, a, of an emphasis today on, uh, or, or maybe a regenerated emphasis on this connection between the producer and the customer? Where do you think that stemmed from? You know, it's been growing for, for years. Uh, I've noticed that over the last two decades, more and more people are recognizing the connection between diet and health. What they eat is going to impact how long they live and, and how well they live. And we saw that particularly with, with um, organic. You know, a lot of people come into organic right after they've had a baby. 
because they start saying, you know, um, I want to make sure that this new life, I'm taking care of it and, and you know, and making sure that it has a good life. So we've seen that grow for years, but what really, I think, put this on, on a rocket sled was COVID. Um, I, I like to say that for years, you know, people have tried to tell us that the most efficient processing system was to have this consolidation and these plants that process 4,000 head of animals a, a day and have workers in there that are on an assembly line. And I'm a big fan of the Wizard of Oz. And, and I, I say COVID came along like little Toto ripping back the curtain <laughs> uh, to expose the, you know, the lunacy uh, of that consolidated system. And I think the public saw that as well. When they saw that farmers and ranchers were, you know, euthanizing, uh, you know, their, their herds of hogs or, or flocks of, of chickens and the workers were getting sick in those plants. They, they were saying, wait a second, you know, let's, let's take a deeper look now in this, this whole area. Marvin, pull the curtain back for us a little bit on, uh, on some of your early, uh, early childhood um, and, and how you got interested in military service first and foremost. Absolutely. So how I got started into the military? Yeah, sure. All right. So um, graduated high school a year early. Um, uh, went to University of Miami, got bored there, joined the military. My dad said, hey, you can't stay home. You'll get in trouble that way. And um, <laughs> so here I am, brother. So I uh, stayed in the military and, and never looked back. And I loved it. You know, did, did you grow up on a farm near an ag, uh, near an ag area? Absolutely. So the state of Florida, that's nothing but just cattle down there. A lot of people think there's orange groves or grapefruit or mangoes. But if you really take a look, if you're coming down anywhere from Jacksonville down to South South Florida, you see nothing but cattle on 95 South heading down left and right on the highways. And um, so growing up there, I grew up around a lot of cattle all the time, being around it. Um, me and my dad brother used to uh, go to a lot of rodeos and a lot of cattle farms. And that's how me and my dad spent a lot of time together. What about the army gravitated you towards that branch of service? Um, could you elaborate on that question again? Why the army? Uh, it was the first choice. I didn't, um, I wasn't really fond of the air force and I wasn't really fond of the Marine side of it. You know, no point intended, but uh, I feel I can get a little bit more of me out of the United States Army. Uh, more, <laughs> more of my personality. Yeah, I, I, did, I didn't like the way the the other branches served, and I chose that one. It's a fair, it's a fair critique of uh, of all of the others, especially uh, especially the Marine Corps. Uh, what'd you do in the Army, Marvin? It it fit it fits your category. I started out in Patriot missiles. Is what I started okay. out in. Are you familiar with the Patriot missile? I am, but give give the listeners a sense of what that is in case they're not. Absolutely. So Patriot missile is um, something that's uh, it's just a uh, surface-to-air style missile that takes off and prevents um, incoming projectiles from space on downward. You know, so that was my main thing inside of um, the military from that point. Later on and throughout the military, slid from there into another branch of the another uh, olive branch inside of the military and I was on the intel side um, became an anti-terrorism specialist from that point how did you go from patriot missiles to intelligence 
what was that progression like? That's an uncommon one. No, it's not. It's very simple. Um, it's where your mind is. I have a very hungry mind. I don't like to, um, you know, stand still or sit there. I have to feed this thing up here. And and that was something that fit my category. I love reading. Um, so I just went that route and that was um, the best thing that ever happened to me. Can you can you give me a sense of what some of those early deployments were like for you? scary especially uh something that you've never seen before it definitely affects your morals values and your beliefs um if you've never been to uh, any deployments before um different things like that would definitely affect you um there's some really you know uh different things in life man that you never would want to face but you had to face or see um so it definitely shakes your morals values and your beliefs can you give me a sense of where you were deployed? Yeah, uh, the very first one, um, the very first deployment was in um, KKMC um, over in Saudi Arabia. Um, okay. So when the, when the war first started out from there, um, we were there when it kicked off in that portion and seeing a lot of stuff there I wasn't expecting to see from there, but it definitely happened there, brother. How long was your military career? 15 years, and then I did another 14 years on the civilian side. And that's where I finished everything up in there, a total of 28. How did you make that transition from Army intelligence into the meat production, specifically the cattle space? The deployment space is what it is. Um, that's what did it. Um, morals, values, and beliefs. Um, and I want to stay on that topic because if your morals, your values, and your beliefs is shook, um, and you as a person, you don't know your boundaries left and right, and you see certain things, and you don't know where you're stable at. And I became unstable and almost committed suicide. Um, at that point, uh, that's when my father got involved and said, son, I need for you to come home. Um, at that point is when I wanted to, um, uh, my dad wanted me to regather myself because from, I was done, brother. All I saw was complete darkness. And um, relationship was terrible. Um, me myself was terrible you know and I just wasn't myself you know and um my dad spun me back around to something that I loved and that's agriculture so when I came home um uh, Mike that's when he uh, sent me over to a friend's house um that night um and I got over there that next morning and um he was a veteran uh 88 years old and he had cattle and um turned around from there he taught me the ropes of where I'm at right now today. And that's how he deals with mental health. And he introduced me to um, what we would call agrotherapy. So mm -hmm. being a Vietnam veteran, um, he told me it's okay to cry. He told me it's okay to, you know, to be out here in the, in the pasture and just let it all go. Marvin, why, why do you think that um, that stipulation exists in both the military, but then also the, the veteran community that they're, uh, that there's no other option. Why do you think so many veterans today are having to deal with suicide issues? Honestly, if, if, if I may, um, in a category like this, the, the, the military sees you in two, um, you know, two ways, one as a soldier and the other one as equipment. Um, once you're getting ready to retire and you're getting out, you're viewed as equipment. You're not 
viewed as that subject matter expert no more. You're viewed as something less than. You start dealing with things of like reprisal at work, you know. But I really think that the military um, should give uh, soldiers transitioning out of the military 100 days prior to them leaving um, with their new replacement on deck. Let that replacement pick up the ball and roll with it. Let that out-processing soldier have 100 days with uh, therapy with their family. Involve the family into therapy to regroup the two back together again. And I think that is the best way to start rejoining people together so that they don't have to experience the way things that I did and everyone else before me as well. There needs to be a better solution. They taught us to be this machine, but they never turned teaches to turn this machine off. That is 100% where I was going. If you are an NCO or an officer, Mike, we see things as if we're getting raided all the time. But what your NCO block was, you know, if it's a one, two, and three block, we want one blocks in life. But we don't know how to turn that off once we get out of the military. It's absolutely what I was thinking, which is that it, it, you often, the military spends years training its service members to be what they are and how they're deployed. And then they expect in a very short period of time, much less than the time and energy that was put into them to not do that profession anymore. Dave, growing up in this sort of smaller community, uh, you talked about this, um, how powerful that was for you. How is your current profession or how did your current profession ultimately get connected to the military veteran space and how are you seeing commonalities between those two um, sets of, of folks? Well, the, you know, the thing that I'm seeing is more as I work more and more with, uh, with veterans like Marvin and, and, you know, thanks to our partnership with the Farmer Veteran Coalition that has been connecting veterans with, with our, our process. I never served in the military, but what I sense when I'm around veterans is they want to create life. They want to create value. They want to feed people. And, you know, from an outsider's perspective, I just think, gosh, you have people that, you know, they're thrown into situations where you're shooting at other people and other people are shooting at you. And, you know, everything is, could be fleeting that to come back is, perhaps there's a real value in being able to put down roots into something and, and to be able to create, you know, something good. And I just, from the veterans that I'm working with, I just, that just seems to bubble out. And that's, you know, for me to be able to work with them and, and to, you know, facilitate. And, and I say me, but we've got an incredible team. And as Marvin can tell you, you know, there's uh, my, my, fellow director, Chris Roper, um, you know, we just, we love to sit down with folks and, and just say, okay, what can we do to, to help this, you know, move forward? Can you, can you formally describe that program day that allows you to interact in this way with military veterans? Well, you know, the, the program that, that we've been brought on to do is, is when the administration um, made this commitment to creating a more resilient, diverse, and equitable meat and poultry processing system. 
they knew that if all it was going to consist of was giving somebody a grant to build a processing facility, um, that was going to be a recipe for for disaster. Was that you know people are are, are coming into this and. Some of them may have had deep roots in agriculture, but others haven't. Some, some are coming into it as, as new. And so USDA recognized that they, you know, folks need to have assistance every step along the process from figuring out, okay, what are we raising and what do we want to process and who do we want to feed? Is it our community or do we want to build a, a, a brand? And, and what are the special attributes? You know, we're working with a lot of uh, folks doing halal processing right now and, and tribal folks and, you know, what's the cultural considerations? And so they brought together a, a, a network of organizations to be on hand to provide that technical assistance. And everybody from the Niche Meat Processing Assistance Network and the Intertribal Agricultural Council to the American Association of Meat Processors and, and others, um, so that we would have the, the expertise to, to work with folks. And then the group that I'm fortunate to be a part of is the Flower Hill Institute, which is an indigenous led nonprofit based on the Jemez Pueblo in New Mexico. Um, we have the agreement with USDA to coordinate this network. So, you know, we have the ability to get out and, and work with folks. But the other thing that USDA made it very, very clear from day one was they wanna make sure that this, these resources and services are getting out to particularly underserved producers. And so we have been putting together partnerships through memorandums of understandings with a number of organizations, the National Latino Farmers and Ranchers Association and the Rural Coalition and, and others. And that's why when I contacted um, uh, Jeanette Lombardo at, at Farmer Veteran Coalition, and a good friend of mine that I worked with for, for years was is on the board of, of Farmer Veteran Coalition, so I kind of used him to open the door. But Jeanette just stepped right forward and she said, yes, we want to be a part of this. We, we want to feed into this because, you know, she talked about just what Marvin was talking about, those, that transition from the military is so difficult and the suicide rates are so high during those first months, that the more that we can do to help those veterans find a sense of purpose and to help them uh, you know, along uh, with, with something that, that they're passionate about is so important. How would that work, Dave? The way it starts is we actually have a, uh, an intake form. You know, People can give us their information. They can go online um, to provide us with their information of who they are, where they're at, what are they looking to process, what, what are their goals. And we just take that and kind of sort through. Some people just are looking for some simple information we can email to them. Others have got some more in-depth questions. And so, you know, we generally will circle back and say, okay, can we set up a Zoom meeting and let's talk for an hour about what you're trying to do. And then who can we hook hook you up with. Um, and then, you know, particularly Chris and myself, we've been, we keep our suitcases packed right now. And so, you know, to be able to sit down with folks around their kitchen table, like we were able to do with, with Marvin and Tanisha last week and, 
you know, have them open up their books and their business plan and, and the tour of what they're trying to do um, is, is really important because every single project that we are working on right now is different. We have folks all the way from Puerto Rico to the Northern Mariana Islands. Uh, we have folks that are doing rabbits. We have folks that are doing reindeer. Um, we have folks that, you know, are, are just a mom and pop operation up in, up in the mountains here in Colorado that are uh, trying to expand their custom processing plant. And, and folks then like, like Marvin and Tanisha that are looking to build a, a branded product. So there's no template. There's no boilerplate. It is all, let's figure this out. We don't have all the answers, but we're going to sit down and we're going to figure out, uh, you know, we're, we're part of the team here. We're going to work with you as we go along and see what, how we can do this together. Marvin, how did you originally get connected to Dave and Chris and the Flower Hill Institute? Um, uh, good conferences, you know, traveling around to different um, beef cattle conferences, and we ran right into each other. Um, we have a mutual friend named Daryl Tenney from the Tenney Group here in North Carolina. Um, and um, uh, we got the introduction through Daryl Tenney and then meeting each other at different conferences around the world. And we've never stopped being friends since that one day, that first day, and we've been together ever since. Did you know about the Flower Hill Institute or the program or the kinds of services that they provided beforehand? I did, brother. I sure did. Um, um, in this particular space, of course, you're going to find who is available um, in the space uh, or the level that you're working in right now. And for, uh, for the Briarwood brand, Flower Hill was that next skill level we needed to get to that can help us to uh, achieve the goal for, uh, for our processing plant. Absolutely, brother. I want to talk about the processing plant, but maybe before we do that, give us a sense of who Briar, uh, Briarwood Cattle Farms is, what your particular product set is, where you're focused on. Absolutely. So Briarwood Cattle Farm is a cow calf operation um, that we raise Black Angus cows on a regenerative farm. Um, so we take everything that we have here and we try to reutilize everything we have here as far as our manure, our grass, and try to structure everything to keep costs way down. In other words, raise cattle the traditional way. Um, and that helps us to start out. So by doing that, brother, we, uh, we involve ourselves with key leaders in the community, um, different um, uh, veterinarians, uh, uh, different um, nutritionists to get the best that we can out of our livestock. So that way we can have the best food put in front of someone um, so they can have the best animal that they can have. Um, um, that is one of the main things that we specialize here. Uh, product wise is uh, beef, chicken and pork um, is what we have here. So um, on the chicken side, of course, that's your broilers. We raise our uh, broilers here, pasture-raised broilers, and the same thing for our, our um, hogs as well. It's important, Mike, um, too, because when you look out there, you know, there's a lot of press and a lot of, you know, discussion about, you know, livestock or destroying the environment type thing. And, of course, that's where having spent 20 years in the bison business and, and you know, in addition to being a director of the association, my wife and I ended up with being partners in a bison herd on a, on a regenerative ranch. But you think about these ecosystems of North America. These ecosystems evolve under continuous grazing by ruminant animals. Bison were the keystone species, but there were deer and elk and antelope and, 
and the grasses and the forage and the soils all evolved with that constant interaction. And, you know, the best thing that we can do to take care of the environment is to foster that normal symbiotic relationship between these grazing animals and the environment. And the good thing about it is we get some really tasty meat out of it. So, you know, it's, it's good for the environment and it, it's good for the animals and it's delicious. That's right. You won't, you won't hear any argument from me, Dave, in that, uh, <laughs> in that respect. I'm less familiar with the, the particular regenerative practices around bison production. You know, when you think about it now, regenerative practices in cattle ranching are really designed to mimic what the bison did historically. And so what you would have is these tightly bunched groups of animals. They would stay together to protect themselves from the predators. And they would move into a habitat and they would graze it very hard. They would graze it down very quickly. Their hooves would stir the soil and press the seeds down into, into the soil. Uh, the hooves and the wallowing would create depressions that captured the moisture. Um, the manure, the urine provided the nutrients for the soil. And then they would move away. Um, and they wouldn't come back to, to that piece of ground for, for perhaps months. And that land would have a chance to rest and the, the seeds would have a chance to, to, to blossom, but the plants that have been grazed down would have a chance to put down new root systems and set up new leaves, which we call the solar collectors. And, you know, that practice then is a very efficient way of capturing carbon. Um, in fact, the University of California, Davis, put out a publication a few years back saying that grasslands are a more resilient carbon trap than forest. Um, because even though forests do a great job of capturing carbon, a lot of it is above ground. Mm -hmm. And if you're, you're here where I am in the West and those forest fires come through, that carbon all goes back into the atmosphere. But those grasses and those forbs and those you know, forages they capture that carbon and they put it down into the soil. They lock it back into the soil. So even when a fire comes along, that carbon's down in the soil where it's creating organic matter and, and, and the ability to create even healthier plant systems. Marvin, are you employing similar practices there? Rotational grazing, these kinds of things? Absolutely, it's the only way. Um, it's the only way to keep costs down, brother. It's the only way to maximize your your yield for what you have and um because animals they blow right through it you know um they'll go through all the pastures and you won't have anything and next thing you know you're into cost of spending of of adding more of your cereals now uh to supplement for what they're missing so absolutely sectional graze is the uh one of the best ways to to do it inside of the industry now yeah D define define that just for folks who are maybe not familiar with that term sectional grazing yes absolutely it's from when you just um you would pick up a plot of your land um you would run temporary lines or temporary sticks of post uh that would give the cattle uh, a boundary of what to eat and what not to eat um say hey this is all i'm going to give you for today the cattle would take that eat it down you know as low as they can tomorrow we'll move it forward move the line forward and give them a little bit more 
at a time, like Dave was saying, that gives the time for the cattle to massage the soil, uh, to turn around to use their urine and their, and their uh, manure to actually add that fertilizer back into that soil and where their hooves actually massage the soil and loosen it up and then irrigate it again. So it all works out evenly to give you an even path um, throughout your pasture there. It, it makes it all even from where it's strategizing and putting the manure in the uh, waters that the cows are having, or in this case, their, their urine. It spreads it out pretty even throughout the fields. Dave, what are, what are some of the things um, that you've talked to Marvin about in his particular operation that um, that's really sort of elevated what they're doing? Some of those techniques that you've learned or that you advise guys like Marvin and his group? Well, you know, I think Marvin's got the, he's getting the production side down pretty good. And so, um, and then Chris, you know, the, the, my fellow director, his background is really heavy into the construction side and, and developing, you know, the, the nuts and bolts of a processing plant. So, you know, to have that kind of expertise, um, you know, my background is, is a lot with differentiated marketing of, you know, natural meats, of organic, um, you know, different products. So how can we take the Briarwood products and distinguish them in the marketplace and put them, you know, in a way that will really connect with the customers and, and get that value out. So there's a number of things like that. And, and I don't want to gloss over the rest of our network. They haven't worked with, with Marvin uh, as much as, as we have, but you know, as, as folks come into it with whatever they're trying to do, um, we have some folks I, I mentioned earlier, Halal, you know, a number of folks that are, are wanting to do Halal projects and the Niche Meat Processing Assistance Network has someone working within their network that is probably the leading expert in um, ritual slaughter and, and, and processing. So, you know, we can bring that person in and work with them. The Agricultural Utilization Research Institute is doing a lot of work on, on um, uses for byproducts, you know, from these processing plants. And, and the American Association of Meat Processors has a wealth of information on regulatory processes. So it's, it's whatever we can do on that. And I want to circle back because the, the byproduct side is, is really a huge area that we're working on with most of these projects right now. Because with animal you know, production or proteins, it's about carcass utilization. It's about getting some value on, from every part of that animal. And when you think about it, those big processors, the 4,000 head a day or whatever, they get, they get something for every part. They might not get a lot for it, but they get something. And when you come into these smaller processors like Marvin, you know, is putting together, so many of them are paying to have those byproducts hauled away and put into landfills. Uh, the, the Hide and Leather Council of America estimates that 5 million cattle hides are put into landfills every year. And yet there are companies out there that are looking for differentiated hides. They call it story leather. They want leather that's coming from regenerative agriculture or minority producers or tribal or bison. Marvin, how are your products, how are you differentiating them in this market? 
Um, great question. Um, me personally, the way that the Broward brand does it, um, we do it by culture. So we use that same product or uh, same method, but we use um, different marketing techniques per culture. You know, one piece of animal, um, this culture may eat it. Same, same piece of animal, um, another culture won't eat it. So that way, instead of us wasting the product, we try to sell more to our our cultures and that widens our horizon as well to get more clients and more more customers and what we call more family members uh, to the Broward brand. Give me an example. Uh, for instance, let's say, for instance, the African-American community loves oxtails. Um, white culture might not like oxtails. So that's a byproduct that one culture likes and another culture don't like at all. So it's a way that we get a chance to maximize the animal because we took all the, our time with it, and I'm very thankful for that animal, and I don't want anything to go to waste on that animal. If in that example, you're marketing the oxtail to the African-American community, how are you identifying that customer base? What's your methods? Cooking. Uh, keep it real simple. Okay. It's um, recipes. Where um, If you look at the Broadway brand and look at our social media page, we talk a lot about cooking. And that cooking, the seasonings draw people into it because we're talking about the seasonings that, that that culture can identify. Not just saying, hey, I'm targeting hey specific this race of people. We actually use the seasonings that they could um they could relate to. Mm. Taste buds, I'm a way way of doing it. Okay. So smell is yeah. So let's say for instance, a Goya seasoning. If you're thinking of a Goya seasoning, you automatically think of what? I don't know. I'm not oh. familiar with that seasoning. Uh, it's more <laughs> educate a, me. Yeah, yeah. Um, Goya seasoning, man, is a phenomenal season that we use a lot growing up in Florida. It's, it's more of the Spanish culture. And, um, man, that season is like a um, like a Lowry's on times 10, um, but full of flavor to it. But it's more and more for a culture you can use on rice and you can use on, um, you know, on a protein as well. But if you're speaking of these ideas, you're targeting the people that use it a whole lot giving them fresh ideas with the type of meat that they use by using traditional recipes that mom or grandmother used to do. And that way we could pull back the smells and pull back the great memories of seeing the apron back on again. And you could see, you know, uh, back in the kitchen again of what that item used to be. But you're still using like social media as the means through which to access these different cultural organizations and groups. Yes, the way that we don't identify any particular target of people, we keep everything vanilla across the board. Um, and that way they find us by the social media and the groups of people that are into it. Anything that the Broadway brand is putting out is going to be all vanilla, but it's going to be targeting great, great opportunity, great flavor, uh, reuniting. Um, Mike, uh, I could say this and you would understand it. Food is national security. And if we can if we can get a roast in front of um, uh, one, you know, some of our, our mothers or grandmothers in church, um, they're going to take that roast and do what the following: put sweet potatoes, excuse me, excuse me, put white potatoes and carrots and onions mm -hmm. into it. Right there is it changes your whole mentality. It takes you back to where you used to having that particular meal right there. You know, I'm a I'm a data nerd and and a trends nerd and a marketing nerd, so. I monitor this stuff, and, and one of the things that we're seeing 
growing among so much of the public is nostalgia, food as nostalgia. And we're seeing this with projects that we're working with all over is, and you think about this, you know, I'm, I'm the old guy in this conversation. So I can remember back in the 70s and 80s when the big trend was generic food. And all of a sudden people started saying, wait a second, no, we're not generic. Food's not generic. Food is, you know, and that's where things like the slow food movement and others have, have grown. And you're really seeing this with cultures. Um, you know, tribal cultures, for example, you know, they were ripped away from their cultures and, and stuck in schools where they weren't allowed to speak their own language. And, and you know, the, their natural proteins were taken away and, and they're substituted with fry bread. And, and you're really seeing this renaissance of people saying, no, we want to reestablish our food traditions to, you know, to help us connect back with our heritage and, and the like. And that's, a, again, a huge opportunity for many of these projects that, that we're working with is, you know, if, if Marvin is going to go create in his processing plant a one-pound brick of ground beef that's going to go into Kroger and sit in the meat case next to the one-pound brick of ground beef that comes out of one of these large plants, Marvin won't be Good in luck. business a year Good from luck. now. Good luck. Marvin has the ability to produce something that is unique and authentic. Did this idea of, of culture as a marketing technique and nostalgia, was this a, Marvin, was this you and your, I'm assuming your wife is the, the young lady that Dave keeps uh, mentioning. Was this, was this from the Briarwood folks or was this a Flower Hill Institute that you all kind of collectively massaged into something to take out into the public? None at all, brother. That's the way my family, that's the way we were raised up. Um, we love to so eat. Smart. We, we love to eat particular foods. Um, um, if you want to draw people to your table, you cook what they love to eat. And um, you can have the most outstanding conversation um, and even do a deep dive conversation on the particular food that they love to have. For instance, um, when we first go out on a date, um, we're, we're going to ask our young lady what type of food does she like, and then all of a sudden we're going to take her to that type of a restaurant. Well, that's the same thing, but just using it now as a marketing piece here for the Broward brand. Plus, good food brings good conversation. What's this, what's this meat processing plant we keep talking about? What, what's going on there? So, Are you building one? What's the thought? Yeah, so the, the facility is already up. Um, the facility is already up and standing. It's in, um, the address is 2128 Marion Stage Road in Fairmont, North Carolina. Um, the facility is a uh, 27,500 square feet uh, building. It looks like a, like a target. You remember if you look at the size of target, uh, something like that, but there's a butt inside of that. The facility is so large, we're not starting out large in that manner. We're starting out small with the mom and pop mentality. Um, that way we have direct socialization with everyone inside the facility. We have hands-on and good communication with everyone. We're not coming in starting you know, large and don't have any room to grow at that point. We're starting out very small in the corner of that building. Then we're going to grow into it later on down the years. So right now, only Briarwood cattle are coming through this facility? 
No, not at all, brother. This whole facility, uh, Briarwood Custom Meats is designed for the customers. Our, our purpose is, um, our new model for that is Briarwood Custom Meats is part of the solution, not the problem. So what we want to do is bring in um, the have an avenue for our local producers to uh, get get their product or get their livestock out of the fields and then put um, back onto tables. Um, so that way we could bring you know uh, money back into our local community um, that way because now our farmers are losing their products, um, losing their animals because they need to sell uh, their livestock due to um, can't keep up with a hay bill or a feed bill or anything else like that. So we want to be part of the solution to help out inside of that. So if, if I'm a local small cow-calf operator or, or grass-fed producer in the North Carolina area, and I want my cattle to go through Briarwood Custom Meats and that processing facility, do I reach out to you and say, hey, can you help me get my animals to slaughter? How does that work? Absolutely, brother. So everything is going to be up online on the website. Um, and then I like to talk, me personally, I like to talk to everyone first that we're meeting. Um, and I like the old traditional way to get to know your local producer, get to know your local farmer. Um, and then from there, we get a chance to see how we can help each other out. Um, I'm learning a lot from that. And I'm learning that from Dave. Uh, Dave is teaching me so much to make sure that our producers are having proper field records, keeping their records on, uh, on time. So that way we can work ourselves backwards. We know where our food is coming from. We know the health of that particular food. So now that uh, producers now uh, a better accountability partner with this animal. Now, once we introduce it into the food chain, now we know what we're working with and what we're dealing with. Plus, once we get it up on that rail, we wanna communicate back to the uh, customer to let them know this is what your product is producing more fat not enough fat and let's talk about this so we could change the strategy up with that producer as well good communication is what we need and that's not enough of what we're doing and we want to be part of that to uh, communicate back to them the same way but by doing that we need to create a narrative to talk more with each other that's such an important point in that once that product goes through processing and you have something finished on the end and the consumer interacts with it, is it what they wanted? Do they want something different? Can we tweak that? Or can we have more of these cuts? Or can you process this cut a different way? You need that feedback mechanism from exactly the producer right. or from the, the consumer that's actually getting that. And you're not going to get that if you're selling into a, a big box retailer like Albertsons or Walmart. Mm -hmm. What's what's the economic incentive for Briarwood Custom Meats to bring these local producers to you know your your corner of the facility, if you will? Well, it it creates volumes for us to put food back into our local farmers markets and our CSAs. Um, it, and it and it helps with our local community to have a product, so that way we're not strategizing and people are not stressing or doing negative things in the community because there's no food. We want to have a resource way so that way our local producers could bring their product in get their product back out and have and put uh money back into their pocket as well so to lower the stress of the community it helps out uh, with economics it helps out with good communication it helps to lower crime i mean you can look at that in so many different ways um and it gives us a sense of purpose with good communication with each other brother 
So this is this this rising tide lifts all boats kind of mentality that you all are approaching this with. Uh, Mike, I want to go back to something. Uh, you remember the part in the beginning of the show when we were talking about food and how the poverty is in other countries? Yeah. That is, yeah. that is the reason right there because I want to be part of the solution so that my children have have food on the table, your children and everyone listening to this podcast has food on the table and we're we're growing it every day, but we need to have an actual solution for it once we're growing it and a place to take it to. And we want to be part of that solution, brother. Thank Dave, you. how how important is it for um, a group like Briarwood Cattle to vertically integrate, to own more of their 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 chain? Well, it's very important. Um, vertical integration, if you if you think about it, vertical integration exists particularly in the poultry industry right now. That is a completely vertically integrated system. The problem with that system is the growers aren't the owners of that vertically integrated system. They're just contract employees and they are subject to, you know, all kinds of things that I won't get into on, on this broadcast. The vertically integrated system can work, but it's got to benefit those growers. It's got to benefit those grassroots producers. And so that's why, you know, taking a look, whether it's a family enterprise like Marvin's, or we have several that are coming together as cooperative ventures where a group of folks are saying, okay, let's put together our joint production and our resources here through a, a cooperative structure to, to create this so that we have that, that control and that relationship with our customers. So yeah, vertical integration is important, but it's equally as important as to who are the owners of that vertically integrated system. Veterans that are listening, who are where Mar Marvin was, you know, several years ago. How do they get in touch with you and the Flower Hill Institute? Um, you can go on to uh, USDA.gov/backslash/meet. That kind of gives you the the overall uh, thing. It's important because this is a moment in time when USDA is directing unprecedented resources to these type of enterprises. And so there are new grants coming out periodically and, and resources. And we want to make sure, first of all, that people are aware of those opportunities. So that's we want their information into our system so we can make them aware of that and, and, and do that. Second is we also want them to know this is at no cost. You're not going to get an invoice for these technical assistance resources there. This is something that U.S. is making available and encouraging us to get out as many people. So that's important. And then, you know, I just have to give another shout out to Farmer Veteran Coalition because um, Jeanette and her crew, you know, they invited us to, to come to their annual stakeholders gathering and to put on a workshop for the members. And they've been getting us, you know, that. So um, folks that are involved with Farmer Veteran Coalition, if, if you go on there, they'll make sure that they get you connected with us as well. Marvin, how can I learn more about what you guys are doing? Man, a few things. Um, Mike, before I say that, I want to I want to piggyback off of what Dave said. Um, Please. The, the Farmer Veteran Coalition is an excellent start. Um, it's my start. I wouldn't be where I'm at today without the Farmer's Veteran Coalition. Getting into farming is like getting into a fraternity. Um, it's very hard. It's, you know, 
uh, transition from the military. We know this language, um, but we don't know anyone that can help us to get started into this. What the Farm and Veteran Coalition is that resource that can help break that barrier language um, and to transition the language with understanding, with the proper resources to get us to get us going. The uh, Farmers Veteran Coalition is a program that uh, they understand people. They have a caring team, and um, and I'm greatly appreciative of them and the Homegrown by Hero label um, that helps us up under the USDA put food out as well. Um, another portion of them is is a uh, Novoba. Uh, Novoba is the next stage uh, with the uh, Farmers Veteran Coalition that gets you to corporate America. That was a portion we didn't get a chance to bring up, but those two organizations, Farmers Veteran Coalition, Homegrown by Hero, and Nuvoba, um, the National Veterans Owned Business Association, um, gets you a seat at the table with corporate America. And that's how we got to that next stage. So those are the main three steps that I want to share with someone that's on this podcast um, to get there. It's a corporate certification that gets you at a seat at the table with your Kroger's, your Denny's, your Walmart, you know, that level of personnel. But without the Farmers Veteran Coalition, I wouldn't be where I'm at now, connecting to those other three places. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Vets and Ag Podcast, brought to you by Farmer Veteran Coalition. In reflecting on this conversation with Dave and Marvin, I was impressed with Dave's insight regarding military veterans and how many of their experiences especially those from combat, can feel fleeting. Uh, Regenerative livestock production gives those same veterans an opportunity to experience sacrifice in in a different way, on their own terms, and always for the greater good. This example is played out to a T with Marvin and his experiences with protein production as a form of therapy, and a way by which he found purpose again. But these experiences can be more than just therapy. They can be a business, and Dave and Martin do an excellent job of detailing how that can be done. I'm so struck by Marvin's idea and his marketing approach of a product to a a target audience through food and spice and this cultural connection. Dave called it food as nostalgia, which I I think is spot on. There is a renaissance underway, a, a slow food movement which I think can be about more than gaining a better understanding of where your food comes from, but also an opportunity to connect again with a family unit and and those sort of foundational values that surround it. If you enjoyed this episode and think other military veterans and supporters would benefit from these insights and stories, please leave us a review and share on social media. You can also find previous episodes and learn more about AGD Consulting by visiting our website. I'm your host, Mike Desai, and until next time, stay frosty.